Well, a couple questions I'll start out with this morning for you. What are the characteristics in your mind of, of someone in authority that does that well? Maybe your boss or maybe kids, your teacher or your principal or your parents at school. What are the qualities of a good boss? The person in authority, perhaps you can think of people in your mind's eye right now that have played that role, that have been a good boss, that have, you've been under, you've had to follow, and think about those qualities. What are those qualities? And maybe also think about a bad boss, just for a second. A bad boss, someone who you've been under their authority and that didn't go so well. Maybe you have hurts and pains from being under that. What makes for a good boss? Also, what makes for someone um, that follows well? Maybe you are a boss in some way. Maybe you have authority. We are all under authority, and often, most of us, maybe except the youngest born, maybe they have the cat or the dog in their house. In some way, you, you have influence over the others. And so think about the good qualities of an employee or someone under authority. What are those qualities and maybe as someone who has led other people, who's the best person who's ever worked for you? And then do the opposite now as well. <laughs> who's the roughest person, the worst person who's ever worked under you? Don't say it out loud. If it's somebody in the room, it's okay. What makes for a good leader? What makes for someone who follows well? See, a good, a good boss leads with authority and a good employee or a good follower submits and follows. And we see authority all the way through our lives, we know that all of us are under God's authority. We see it in government. The, the Bible talks about submitting to authorities above us, local, state, national. I know it's hard. The Bible also talks about the authority in a church, the authority in your home, authorities, social authorities, whether kids, it's at school or other places. We all live under authority. Can I ask you this question? What kind of relationship have you have had, do you have with authority? How do you do when you're the one in authority, when you have the reins over other people, how does that go? How, does they, how do they say it goes? How about when you are under someone else's authority, how do you do? Can you follow? Can you lead? Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll be really in the whole chapter, chapter 8 this morning. The preacher, Solomon, Remember Solomon, this is later in his life, he's the king, so he's been a man in authority, but he's also been a man under authority, under his father's authority, under God's authority in his life. So he's both played the follower and the leader. Last week we looked at Ecclesiastes 7 and we saw how, how we ought to be putting wisdom, wisdom to work in our life with the balance of life, with strength that wisdom provides with discernment that God gives us in his wisdom, which is different than human wisdom. See, sometimes we not only need to put wisdom and work generally in our lives, sometimes we need a model. We need a model of putting wisdom to work in a leadership position, and this is what Solomon offers us this morning. The wisest man on the planet, the man who has been king, who's done it wrong and done it right, is going to give us God's wisdom on what it looks like both to lead and to follow. So look at verses 1 through 9. That's where we'll start, and we'll keep moving through the text. But we see this model, and I want you to think as we go through this, think about all the different power dynamics that are present in your own life. 
between authority and being under authority. There's some great and wise principles that he gives us with the issue of authority. And so let me read 1 through 9. 557 on a Bible near you. Words will be up here. Hope you have your Bible as well to look along this morning. Chapter 8, 1 through 9, Solomon says this. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. That's the king. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be done, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or the wind, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed, this is Solomon, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Your first thought this morning is this. Both honoring and exercising authority requires a deep measure of God's wisdom. Both, if you're in a position under authority or in authority, it requires God's wisdom. There's a lot of great opportunities for us to learn this in this text. But here's the challenge a little bit. If you know the background of Israel, Israel was before Solomon, before David, before Saul, Israel was really a theocracy, and so the people just obeyed God, but what did the people want? They wanted an earthly king like the Egyptians and all the other nations, and so God relented, and he gave them an earthly king in Saul. How was Saul? He was handsome in his appearance. He looked like a great king, and yet he wasn't. And David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was a murderer and an adulterer, and he brought bloodshed to his nation, and Solomon the wisest man on the planet was also king, and yet he was just a king. He wasn't the king. And so this is interesting because we've never lived, none of us have likely ever lived in a kingship, in a monarchy. We live in a democracy, democracy where we can get on Twitter and say what we want to say about the ruler of the local state or national government without fear of what we say, but if you lived in a monarchy, that would be different. Most of the Bible is built that way, where the people submitted to a king, a monarch, and you couldn't just freely speak. You had to give honor and reverence to the king. As a matter of fact, this text even talks about a king's oath, that you, regardless of the way you feel, that you still, there's still a respect and an honor for the king. And you have to be careful when you go before the king. And so that's the context that we're looking at that we don't really associate very well with, but the people obeyed the king and the king's words. And I see at least four things in this text between verses 1 and 9 that are really great principles of both leadership and followership. And I want to show you those. Look at verse 1. It says, who is like the wise and knows the interpretation of a thing? Listen, a good king or a good leader, a good CEO, whoever's in leadership, they have to interpret. 
They ha- wisdom means they can interpret situations. When you walk through COVID, how did the CEO do? How did the pastor do? How did the leader do? Because the leader uniquely has to answer the question of why and cast a vision for the why and whatever he or she is doing. It's not just the how, it's not just the work, but a leader has to think about the why. Why are we doing something? Take for the, the church, for example. We, I could get up here and talk to you about all the needs of the church and the time that we're going to have a fall festival and all those different things. But unless I talk about the why, you're likely not moved to understand why I need to do it. Like C3 Kids, is the reason that you serve in C3 Kids is just because we have a need in there? Or is it because it's an opportunity for you to make disciples, for you to care for our kids, for you to teach the kids the gospel truth and the word of God that God might use that through his spirit to change their heart, that they might know God and follow him. See, that was about discipleship. If I sold that to you two different ways, you've got to know the why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we think in our church community groups is really important? It's because we want you to be involved in the life of the church with other people. The why matters. And this is what the king knows. And so the instruction here is for the king or someone in authority, the first thing is to be wise, to have a clear mind so you can interpret the different scenarios that come about so you can cast a vision of why we do what we do. And so if you're a boss, that's important, but look at it. Here's the result of that, of having a clear mind and having wisdom, having a competency, if you will, to lead. Look at it, what it says. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. He's talking about the king, and the hardness of his face is changed. You ever had a boss that just had that hard, grumpy face all the time, who had the clipboard, just always making sure you got it done? No joy, just driving, driving, driving. Maybe you have a boss like that now. No, a leader has to be joyful. A leader has to invest in other people to cast the vision as well as being joyful. Why so serious? You ever want to ask that to your boss? Don't answer, staff. Where are you? See, she's laughing. She's on my side. Joyful. Are you joyful? You know, I see this in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, when you think of a coach, when you think of a good coach, I know in, in your mind's eye right now when I say coach, what comes to my mind is the really rough and tumble coach, the one who yells and calls out your name to where everybody in the stadium can hear something that you did was wrong, the coach that gets in your face. And sometimes we need that accountability. The other day we were at a game. Uh, a high school football game, and this coach, his voice, oh, what is it with coach? Their voice travels, like, all the way across the, the stadium. And this coach that William has, he's like, you're better than that, 44. You're better than that. Make the tackle. And you're like, uh-oh, who's 44's parents? Where are they at? And then 44 made a great play. He's one of the best players on the team, defensively. He made a great, he made a great play. And you know what that same coach did? He went up to him and high-fived him and grabbed him and shook him and did the side bump and all that stuff. That's a great coach. He's willing to keep the guy accountable to say you're better than that, but at the same time, he can celebrate. He can encourage. That's a great picture of a coach. Parents, do we do that with our kids in a place of leadership? Man, we can find all kinds of critical things 
to talk about with our kids like all day long. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. But are we also turning around and encouraging them and what they do well? Important part of leadership is both of those things, both accountability as well as joy and encouragement and growth. And then you, so that's really for the boss. That's really for the king. If you're in a leadership position, he's kind of speaking to himself. And look, Solomon got that right sometimes and he got it wrong sometimes. But look at verses two through seven. Verses two through seven is really directed to the one who's under authority. I say, this is the King Solomon, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Remember the culture. Remember this is a monarchy. And you had to honor the king's words and the king's wishes and the king's direction. And look at this wisdom. This is really good. Not just in a monarchy, but in a democracy for you and for me as we submit to authorities above us. Look at it. Don't be hasty to go from the king's presence. If you're in the king's presence, don't just walk away and turn your back and leave. Parents, you ever said that? Don't turn your back on me. Don't be hasty to do that. Honor the king. Don't take your stand in an evil cause. Maybe that means before you rant and rave, you need to consider what you're ranting and raving about. You only have so much capital with those in authority. Are you really want to lose it and use it that fast? There's a tact here for employees. There's a tact here for those who follow other people. Do you see it? There's a tact in judgment. There's also going to be a tact in the way you use your tongue. Look at it. Don't take your stand, meaning speaking about something evil. Wait. Consider. For the king, remember, the king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. He's ultimately the boss. He's going to determine the result of whatever you bring to him. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Be careful. It doesn't mean don't question the, the one in authority, but be careful when you do. Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing in a wise heart. Here's wisdom. Will know the proper time. You ever make that mistake where you go to someone at the wrong time because something's burning you and you just bust in your boss's door? You're like, whatever I got to say is more important than whatever you're doing. Listen up, right? He's saying, stop, consider the right time, the right place. We have to do that in all kinds of relationships in our life, don't we? It's great wisdom here. Know the proper time and the just way for there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. You ever had that burden that was so heavy on you, you just needed to tell somebody, you just needed to speak it? Maybe it's a burden at work and you just got to feel like you pop off that email to your boss and you don't save it as a draft and, sp and spend the night considering what you're saying. Boom. That's what he's saying. He's saying have tact. He's saying have tact in your judgment. Have tact with your tongue. Not only that, and that's, those are great principles for us as people under authority. I can't tell you how many times where I wish I had some words back with something that was heavy on my heart. This is good wisdom from Solomon to us. But look, look at the other piece back to the boss in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says this, no man, as a guy in authority who's led a lot of people, no man has power to retain the spirit or wind. No one has the power to know all, think about the wind. How much control do you have over the wind? If you're a runner, where are our runners? Over here, I see a few. If you're a runner or a cyclist or you sail, you got a sailboat or you're a golfer, yeah, sorry. 
you got no control over the wind. You look at it and go, okay, it's a north wind today. And at the place I play golf, about 60% of the holes are in the winter into the wind. I can't control that. I also can't control if the wind shifts to a different direction. And as a leader, you can't control all things. There are things that are outside of your control. You are limited. You are a king, a leader, but you are not the king, the leader. And oftentimes in power, that's the struggle, isn't it? If you have a place of leadership, you end up using and thinking that you have ultimate control over your employees, over the situation. And we found out, I hope you found out by now, it just is not that way. There are wrenches that are thrown into our plans and our purposes. How do we respond to that? Look at the rest of verse 8 and 9. There is no discharge from war, meaning it happens, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given up to it. All this I observed while applying to my heart to all that is done under the sun when man has had power over man to his hurt. Listen, what he's calling for in leaders in the last couple of verses is a humility. Do we have the humility to understand that we're limited, we're finite, that we can't control all the things? It's probably why the king, the face is grumpy and sad because you're trying to control all things. And we can't control all things. We can't control our kids any more than they can control the way we respond. We can't control the traffic. We can't control if the person takes a different job and now I've got to find somebody else. We can't control the markets if you're in finance. You can't control the, the deal that goes through. You can't control those things. Know that even in leadership, you can't control everything. So you have to have a humble spirit about you. And then look at the warning here in the last part of verse 9. If you have power over other people, you can take advantage of them. There are ways, humanly speaking, you can take advantage of other people. Do you see it there? At the end, when man has power over man, oftentimes rough things happen. Authority. You see authority throughout the Bible. This is kind of seed form in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, you see authority as well. You see that Christ is Lord. We're under his authority as believers, that we follow his will and his ways. We see that the government, the Bible says, and it's a rough text when we think about the world that we live in. Think about the world Paul lived in under Nero when he was writing Romans 13. This is the guy, the leader, who was evil and ultimately killed Paul. And Paul says what? Submit yourself to the governing authorities because they have a job given by God. That's hard. And honestly, it was harder for Paul, I would assume, than it is for us and the government that we have. So there's a sense where government has authority. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. After Paul has talked about the church and unity in the church, he talks about what the new life in Christ looks like in chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, kids listen up, parents listen up, he says, you know, the passage, he says this in Titus too, the same idea, but in chapter 6 of Ephesians in verses 1 through 9, he says this, children, talking about authority, children, obey your parents in the Lord, meaning unless they're sinning against the Lord, obey your parents for this is right. Honor, there it is, honor your father and your mother. For this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well for you. So honoring parents, kids, 
means it will go well for you. You won't have as much discipline. You won't have as much time out, spankings, etc., etc. Honor your parents. Obey them even when you don't want to, even when you think they're wrong, even when you want something else. And also parents, don't miss this, parents. Fathers especially, don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's both instruction for those under authority children here and in authority parents to not provoke their children. And when you do, repent, turn, confess. But then he turns to the workplace, and I think this is really interesting. Look at verse 5. Bond servants. In that day, people were basically indentured slaves that would agree to come to work for families. Many of them were slaves, but they were indentured slavery back then. And even them, in scenarios that aren't noble, that aren't right, the call of the scriptures is this, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not faking it, as you would Christ, believing bondservants. Think also the book of Philemon with Onesimus and Philemon and their broken relationship where Paul calls them to return, calls Onesimus to return and make it right. Not by the way of eye service but as, or as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. These are hard commands. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to that master, but as to the Lord. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord. There's blessing, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And then so he goes from the person under authority and he flips it again and he goes to the master, the one who has the indentured servant in his home or her home. Masters, do the same to them. Believing masters, stop your threatening. Be a good leader. Knowing that he who is both the master and yours is in heaven. So you may be a master over people on this earth, but he's the master. He's the ultimate master. And that there is no partiality with him. Examples in the scriptures of authority and submitting to authority and leading well, see, when God's wisdom is at work, when we're putting God's wisdom at work, because that's what wisdom does, understanding and knowledge you can just store, but wisdom, God's wisdom is a gift that we put to work, and here we're talking about putting God's wisdom to work when you're in authority or under authority. So we want to honor authority and also exercise it well. You see these power dynamics? You see them in your own life? When you are under authority, under authority, what would your boss say about you? That's a hard question. What does your boss say about you? Are you tactful with judgment and with your tongue? Or do you rush in when you have a thought? Would you want to lead someone like you if you were the boss? Right? And the other side is this. If you're in authority, what do those under you say about you? What would they say about you? Are you competent? Is there joy and a reasonableness to your leadership? Is there a humility or is there a harshness? And listen, as I say this, as I'm even thinking about this in my own life, there's much in this where we have to repent and confess to your kids, to the people you work with, I got it wrong. And there's grace for you in that. There's grace for me in that. 
But listen, we've seen the model of Solomon. Go look at his life, 1 Kings. He's not the greatest leader. He may be the wisest guy on the earth, but you know what? When King Rehoboam, his son, went to the wise, older, noble men, you know what the encouragement to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was about how he should lead, even though he didn't take the advice? Don't put hard burdens on the people like your daddy did. There were times where Solomon was harsh, and yet later in life, he realizes, don't do that. Don't hurt. Lead well. Be a servant leader. We get this wrong, but here's the beautiful thing. There's a better king, isn't there? There's a better king. There's Jesus. Not only did Jesus come in authority to save, but he modeled a servant leadership. He modeled it too in the way that he lived, where he washed his disciples' feet and he cared for the least of these. He also modeled it to his disciples when he said, don't lord over people like the Gentiles do who want power. And the disciples came to him and said, what about my position in the kingdom? Be the least. The least is the greatest. That's how my kingdom works. And not only was he a servant king, he submitted. Jesus, the king of kings, submitted. He submitted to his father. He submitted to his father's will to go to the cross. He also submitted oftentimes to earthly kings. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. When they came to get him, when Judas betrayed him, he submitted. What did he say? I could call, Peter, I could call a myriad of angels to come and rescue me. You didn't need to cut off the, the soldier's ear, but I'm not going to do that. He stood silent. He submitted to his father's will and even human authority. He's the example. He's the better king and the better model. Amen? Let's keep looking here at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verses 10 through the rest of the chapter into 9-1. That could have been a sermon in and of itself. we still got time on the clock, so we're going to keep going. Oftentimes in wisdom literature, what happens is he talks about this one thing, this wise thing, and then he goes to a different one. In verse 9, there is a connection, though, I would make. I would say, listen, if you're in leadership, you can't take advantage of people because they're hurt and you're hurt. And then he goes into the mysteries Again, he's done this a number of times. He's going to go into the mysteries of inequities, injustice, things that he observes out there that are unfair in life under the sun. And so look at it with me, and I want you to observe the mysteries, things that Solomon, the wisest guy on the planet, still doesn't have answers for. That ought to encourage you. Look at it. There's a number of things. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. There's a funeral. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city when they had done such things in their death. This also is vanity because the sentence against the evil deed is not exceedingly speedy. Because of that, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, meaning they just keep doing more. If there's not consequence, they do more and more evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and pro prolongs his life, yet I know that it would be well with those who, here it is again, fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, 
Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So there is justice. But look at the, the second thing here, the second mystery of inequality, or excuse me, inequity, unfairness. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, meaning the righteous get what the wicked have coming to them. And contrarily, the wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, meaning wicked people prosper, righteous people, they suffer. I said this is also vanity. That's the second vanity. And I, and I commend joy for a man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this, is, this will go well for him in the toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, so he's observing how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out. He's done this like three or four times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Man can't fi figure it out. He can't find out the work that is done under the sun, why it happens, why inequity. It's a mystery. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't really find out. Look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1. But, this is great, all this I laid to heart examining it, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Your second thought, and you can relate to this, I can relate to this, the mysteries of in inequity can leave us with unresolved, burning questions. Mysteries that we can't find answers for leave us with burning questions. Solomon, the wisest guy on the planet, then and now, I don't understand. I don't have all the answers. As wise as I am, I don't have all the answers, especially for things that don't make sense are, and also are unfair. Winston Churchill, if you've ever read Winston Churchill, he lived in a really difficult time with a difficult job on the world stage. He had to figure out on a world stage how to figure out the Nazis of Germany and the Soviets of Russia and us in Japan. What a challenge. And he said this, he said, you know, I understand the Nazis. I understand the evil that motivates them. I also understand the Americans and their thoughts and how they operate. There is a logic to it, but I've never been able to understand the Russians and Stalin. The more things change, the more things stay the same, right? Ukraine. I don't understand how they work. And then he said this about Russia. He said, it's a riddle. They are a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. That's pretty hard to understand. And listen, there are things in life that are like that, that are those kinds of mysteries, a riddle wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma. You've got questions. I've got questions. Life is often like this, but I want you to think about those kinds of mysteries in our life. There are some mysteries that are phenomenal and fabulous and amazing 
And we can't wrap fully our minds around them, but we accept it. The why of conception, scientists don't understand. We understand what God does there, but it's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. The vastness of space, the universe, and its vastness, we don't understand all the mysteries of the universe, and yet we're amazed by it. The smallest now, the biggest, the smallest of cells that we still are discovering more and more of why they do what they do and how they do it. And our technology is pretty good. But we don't have all those mysteries solved, but our reaction to it is often wonder as opposed to frustration. And then you think about the frustrating mysteries even in life that we deal with and we understand and we just keep living and it understand as people living under the sun. We understand that when a plane every once in a while goes into the Bermuda Triangle, stuff happens. We can't explain the pyramids. We have all kinds of theories. We can't fully explain them. We can't explain unsolved murders, the mysteries that we can't explain that we want to know we can't explain why one person gets cancer and the other person doesn't. There are some indicators, but we can't explain all of those things. We can't even explain when you move lanes to get in the faster lane that it always becomes slower. Can you explain that? I can't explain that. But we live with all those things that we don't even like, that are hard, that are painful. But listen, when it comes to God, oftentimes... When it comes to God, we do not accept that there are mysteries. I've got to know. Listen, here's the beauty of the scriptures that do tell us much about God. We can know God fully. We, excuse me. We can know God truly. We can know God truly. It doesn't mean that we know God comprehensively. Jesus said it. Man, if, if I were to give you more, it would blow your mind. Look at the end of Mark. That's what he said. We don't have all about God. One day, we'll find out. One day in heaven. And we also don't have all the mysteries of what we can't understand that are hard. And yet we bang on God's door, and that's okay. And we demand answers to unsolved mysteries of inequity and injustice and things that we perceive are unfair question is, should it be that way? He identifies in this text hard mysteries. He's just observing. He sees the hard mystery, verse 10, if you look at it. Here's a wicked person. They show up to the house of God. They die, and at the funeral, everybody honors them. That's not just. 2011, Kim Jong-il, the supreme leader of North Korea, the guy who's killed who knows how many people, his own people, wicked man for 11 days was celebrated. 21 gun salute, massive pictures of him, mourners, and maybe some of that was out of fear, but much of it wasn't. Routes around the city for 11 days, and we look at that and we say, that's evil, that's wrong, and you'd be right. It's not just, where the wicked are honored and the righteous are not. 
The righteous often go to a grave, an unmarked grave, and nobody celebrates. That's life under the sun. That's what Solomon is observing. And if you come down, you also see that, hey, because God is patient, effectively, because God is patient and long-suffering with evil, what do people do with that? They abuse his grace. People on the earth abuse God's grace all the time, and there's rampant evil because it's not checked. Think about your kid. When they don't have consequences, they're going to do it more and more and more. Same with adults. If there's no perceived like immediate consequence, we tend to do it over and over and over again. Sins in the dark. You think about it, and in, in even in Harris County and Montgomery County, what's the sign that you see when you go from I-45 from Harris County into on 45? The big sign that says, we prosecute here. Right? We prosecute people. So if you're going to do something evil, go back to Harris County where they allow convicts and criminals to do that. We don't allow that here. But people will get away with more in places and cities where more is allowed. It's just human sinful nature. That's what he's saying. And I don't get that. And then you come down to verse 14. There's this other vanity. There's this other vanity where the person who does good He's righteous. He, he does good, but he's seemingly, it doesn't go well for him. So the, the Christian who's 50 years old, who's got a family and children, gets cancer and dies. But the wicked 90-year-old who's run all kinds of evil things and businesses and made all kinds of money off people scamming them lives to be 90 in perfect health. That's what he's saying. What's up with that? I don't understand it, is what he's saying. And we don't understand it either. They're hard mysteries. But often those mysteries, just if you're just being honest, when you see them out there, especially if they happen in your own life, whether it's at work or other, where the person's promoted because they kiss up, and they're, they don't do well, they don't mean well, but they get more. It's life under the sun. That puts us on the struggle bus, doesn't it? What's up, God? Why would you allow this to happen? It's not fair. Solomon didn't have answers for that either, and I, and I think there is some encouragement in that. There are some mysteries, even as the wisest guy on the planet, that he didn't know, and we don't either. But I want you to notice something in verse 14. Verse 14 talks about the righteous should have good happen to them, but they have wicked to happen to them. And the wicked should have good happen or bad happen to them, and they get good. I want you to think about the gospel, the good news of Christ. What is the good news of Christ? First Peter says it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the wicked, you and me, that he might bring us to God. See, Solomon is a wise king, but he's just a king. He's not the king. Not only is Jesus a better king in the sense that he models for us servant leadership and also submission, but the greatest inequity, the greatest injustice that this world has ever seen he used that as the better king, the righteous king for the wicked, you and me. That the wicked 
might be made righteous. He made him, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin, to take sin upon himself for us that we might have the righteousness of God through him. See, Jesus is the better king. And Solomon's not wrong in saying what he's saying, but the better king even uses wickedness to bring about good as the righteous king. Do you know that truth? That truth will change your life. It will change who you are before God. It will change the way you see this world and all its inequities and all its injustices and all the ways in which it's unfair. If there has ever been something that's unfair, it's the cross of Christ. Yet you and I, as the unrighteous, as the wicked, benefit from it. This is what God can do as the king. And maybe you say, that's all great, but I still want answers. I at least want to know how to cope with all the mysteries of inequities in life. How should a believer respond to the unfair world when it comes to their door? How should we respond? And here's the beautiful truth, and this is what you need to hold on to. Hang with me for a few more minutes. Look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1. Solomon comes to this conclusion. I laid all this to heart. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. When you see the hand of God in Scripture, there's, a, there's kind of multiple things the hand of God demonstrates for us and, and communicates to us that picture of the hand of God. See, the hand of God is powerful. It's often used in Scripture as his power. It's also used similarly to his sovereign rule, which is what we're getting at here. But not only is it his power, his hands are his care for his people. And so though there are mysteries of inequity, what Solomon is saying is you can trust God because his hands are big enough, his hands care enough. He won't leave you or forsake you. He is with you and he's powerful and he's sovereign over all things. And he's going to get glory and it's going to be elements of your good, whether you ever see it or not, no matter what happens. He's over it. He cares for you. He's with you. And not only that, look at back at verse 12 and 13 in chapter 8. We also know from these verses that God is just. Look at it. You want to know some answers to mystery? Though the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, which happens, Yet I know, here's his belief, here's Solomon's true belief, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Whether it goes well or not, whether I live a short life as opposed to a long life or have it good in this life or not, I know it in the end will go well for me. And in the end, verse 13, the wicked will get theirs. Do you believe that? That's something that we have to daily believe, come back to, continue to believe that God is just and one day the weights and measures will be laid straight. Do you believe that? And also, not only that, verse 15, because if we can trust in God's sovereign hand, his powerful hand, his caring hand, 
The just will get theirs. And not only that, while all this is going on, he's been saying it all the way through this book. While that's going on, while you don't understand everything, you can still do verse 15. I commend you to joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Some people look at this and say, hey, he's just, he's just giving up. I don't think he's giving up at all. I think he's trusting in the hand of God, and therefore, while he's grieving, while he's going through pain, he can still rejoice and enjoy life, endure life, enjoy the good gifts that God gives, because those good gifts give meaning, and those good gifts are from his hand. Do you see that? So how do we respond to the hard, the mysteries the, in our life? How do we how do we do that? Here's your thought. Here's your third thought, and this is an important one. So we need to trust God's just and sovereign hand, which allows us to both endure and enjoy life, even in and through the mysteries that we can't understand. He's just, y'all. His hand is sovereign. His hand cares through it all. We've seen the example of Solomon talked about the role of Christ in this. But maybe you need a human example too. You ever heard the name Joni Tata Erickson? Maybe you've heard that name. Maybe you've read her books. I've used her a number of times. At 17 years old, she dove off the end of a dock at a lake, headfirst into a shallow water, broke her neck quadriplegic almost instantly. She spent many a year, 30 years, walking through the mystery of that, the pain of that, what she felt was unfair to her and her future about that. The more she struggled, the more she clung to God. And she, over time, and probably still goes here, she realized that God even intends something like what happened to her, the pain and the mystery of it, to show her that God intends to understand. God is big enough to understand what happened. God, in his wisdom, is enough to even allow it, and these are her words, to even allow it, and he's powerful enough to use it in her life and other people's lives as well. This is an extreme example of pain and mystery and unfairness, right? John Piper interviewed her one day and asked her some questions about the fairness of it and the mystery of it and the pain of dealing with the hurt of it. And she raised her hands as best she could with her braces on her hands and the loudest voice that she could muster. And she said these words. Listen to these words. This is the prison where God has set me free. Not free from pain. Not free from limitation. Not free from frustration of it all. But the freedom to live. The freedom of life. That life is more than legs and skiing and jogging. It's about forgiveness. It's about hope. It's about love. It's about meaning. It's about eternal life. It's about knowing Jesus. 
It's about knowing that God will never leave you or forsake you. I want you to think about the relationships that you have in your life. You have those relationships with people because you trust them. If they break your trust, that looks different. What Joni Erickson Tata figured out in life and the pain and the mystery and the unfairness of life, she came to places where she realized as God held her in his hands, she realized that she could trust God and she could trust his character. Do you? Do you trust his character? Do you trust who he is? See, here's your takeaway today. Though God often works in mysterious ways, you can trust him. You can trust him to endure. You can enjoy life trusting in his hands. His hands that are strong. His hands that are sovereign over all things and his hands that care. Let me pray.